Then, on the first ten chapters of St. John, or ten verses of St. John, the 15th chapter, for a long time, it's slow going, isn't it? I mean, you'd be surprised how much the Bible says, amen, without saying it. So we're going to start in at the 10th verse. I just want to read that, and we'll be majoring for a little while on the 11th verse, where Jesus is saying, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And from the last verse or two, Jesus stops his illusion and allegories about the vine and about the branches, and he begins to talk very plainly and openly to those who are bearing fruit. As he just drops all the illusions and he drops all the allegories and what have you, and expecting that his disciples is understanding what he has to say, he drops all the vine and the branches thing, and he says, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And then he says something very important in the 11th verse. He says, These things have I spoken unto you. He's talking about the vine and the branches, all the things that we've discussed for the last three weeks or a month. And he simply says, These things have I spoken unto you, and it seems like he's saying for a singular purpose. In other words, there is probably several reasons, but the basic reason he is talking to us here about is that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And as I read that scripture, there was something kind of turned over in my heart as I began to look Jesus is on his way to Gethsemane and soon going to be on his way to the cross of Calvary. He knows where he's going. It never, never seems to deter him from ministering to his disciples, knowing full well that they're going to be carrying his message. Now, I want you to notice here again, and I feel like it's very pertinent to it that we mention this. He's not speaking to sinners certainly doesn't seem to be speaking to individuals outside of those that he termed the, those that are in with him. He's speaking to his disciples or his followers, and he's simply saying to them that it has to be fruit-bearing. Now, we speak a lot, and I see nothing wrong with that, but we speak a lot concerning the necessity of the Holy Ghost, and it is a necessity. It is a much-needed thing in our life. In fact, the business is about the only thing that's going to bear us on eagle's wings and take us. But down through the ages of time, we spoke very little about the necessity of the Holy Ghost bringing fruit into our lives. We simply have gloried and shouted over the fact that we have the Holy Ghost, and we seem to have completely ignored what it has been placed there for and what it should do in our lives. That has been an injustice to God and an injustice to God's Word. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this, a person with the Holy Ghost, without allowing it to lead him and guide him and lighten his life and bring fruit to his life, is no better, in a sense, than an individual that has never received it. All right? Now, I realize that that goes against the grain of uh, a lot of us, but nevertheless, it's truth. And I make this allegory, and I think you'll agree with me, 
to have electric lights in this building and never turn them on, it's no better than if we never had any whatsoever. Amen? So we need to recognize that, that the Holy Ghost was given us for a reason. It's given us the ability that we might bear fruit. And we've said this so often, that seems to be the only thing the branches are for. Attached to the vine, and that seems to be their only reason for being there is to bear fruit. The Bible tells us that if we don't, then there's coming a time when we're going to be uh, clipped off, we're going to be taken away, and then it tells us where we're going to end up at. Brother Hosko, you're trying to tell me that Holy Ghost-filled people, Holy Ghost-filled people without being obedient to God's Word, is no better than the bare sinner that has been disobedient to God's Word. Amen? So we need to recognize that. And once we recognize that, then we have to realize that there's something in our life that we have to do. And Jesus is summing all of this up, and he departs from all the illusions about the branches and about the vine and all of this, and then he begins to talk plainly, and let's go over the end. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy right might remain in you. In other words, everything that I have said to you, everything that I've spoken to you concerning the branches and concerning the vine is because I want my love to remain in you, my joy to remain in you. And then he says that your joy might be full or might come to maturity or might be fully attained. Now it would seem at a point like this when you're reading this, Jesus knowing where he's going and knowing the tragedy of the ages that he's going to suffer, you'd think at this point in his life that he would begin to speak concerning peace and consolation. But instead you'll see that he speaks of his joy and the fact that it should remain in his disciples and that if it does, their joy, their aspirations, their dreams, their desires would be completely realized and fulfilled. I have to stop there long enough to say, what a Savior. What a Savior. That in face of all the things that he's going through, all that has happened to him and all that's happening to him in his life, he's still concerned about his disciples and still concerned about his followers. And he's trying to tell them that regardless of what has happened thus far in his life or what will happen, that he has a joy a certain joy that they need to experience, and he wants his joy to remain in his disciples until their joy can be realized and their joy can be fulfilled. Now, what is a question that's posed to us tonight? What is the elements of his joy? What does it consist of? In other words, when we talk about the joy of the Lord, what are we actually talking about? What are we trying to say? What's Jesus trying to say here concerning uh, his love that abides and his joy that abides in him. What's he trying to say? What kind of a joy did he experience, did he have? What kind of a joy has he left us? And what kind of a joy is he wanting us to attain? And of course we can't attain it until we can ascertain it, until we can understand what his joy is. Well, let's look at his life. Certainly he didn't have a lot of joyous events that surrounds most of us. Certainly he didn't have the joy of the world. His life was filled with sorrow. The Bible says he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. 
And that seems like a paradox there. That seems like it's saying one thing, and then he turns right around and saying, I'm a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and yet he talks as if his life is filled with joy. So in other words, he's speaking in a mysterious thing if it needs to be understood. He's trying to let us know that in this world, there is sorrow. In our physical life, there's going to be some sorrow. There's going to be some tears flow from our eyes. Some misunderstandings, some things that we don't understand. And that happened to Jesus. And so in relation to him as a man, he was acquainted with sorrow. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. But what dwelled within him never saw a far sorrowful moment from the time he walked to shores of Galilee. In other words, what joy there is in this world, in a Christian life, has to come through the Holy Ghost of God. If there's any joy like the joy Jesus has, it has to be a fruit of the Spirit given us by the Holy Spirit of God. So the first thing we've got to realize is Jesus wasn't talking about the type of joy that we experience. Elation one minute, way down in the dumps the next minute. Jesus is talking about something that's locked up securely inside of the spiritual man that can, can make its way out any time that we so desire to give him our lives. Now his joy was in self-sacrifice. That's probably alien and unknown to the world. But Jesus gives us a very sublime example of what self-sacrifice is. The Bible tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, and he sat down on the right hand of God or the right hand of power, which is correctly translated. Now, when you look at that, you can misunderstand that scripture too. For the joy that was set before him, what type of joy is he talking about? Is that a selfish type of joy? That means he goes and leaves this world and leaves this body and again goes into the glorious presence where he dwells and he don't have to suffer here anymore. Is this the joy he's talking about? I don't believe so. I think Jesus went further than that. I think the joy that was set before him when he despised the cross and despised the shame and all of this was not the joy that he was going to have after departing this life, had no more had to suffer, but his joy is where it's always been. His joy was in his church, in his ability to purchase the church of the living God. And that's the joy that was set before him that day. That is what he hoped to see when he endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down on the throne of power and looked down and saw with joy the church of the living God redeemed by his blood and filled with his spirit. Hallelujah. And he still looks down at his church with joy. That's his joy. He fulfilled that joy. Ever since man fell in the Garden of Eden, it has been in the mind of God to redeem mankind and establish a glorious church on this earth. Hallelujah, that man could see that. And they headed that direction, sacrifice of bulls and goats and prophets and kings and all these things and all the rituals and what have you was just examples laid forth until finally the day would come when Jesus himself, God himself, veiled himself in human flesh and came down to pay the supreme price and sacrifice to redeem mankind and set his church in motion. And when he sat upon the right hand of power, there was 
joy unspeakable in his life and full of glory. That's the joy of self-sacrifice. Jesus knew he would never have the type of joy he needed in his life without sacrificing his own selfish desires. Innate characteristics of the Adamic nature which he inherited as well as the divine nature was continually searching for a joy inside of him like we search for. You ever get discouraged and despondent? Have you reach out and wonder, where's the joy? And so we'll buy ourselves something or we'll go someplace for ourselves. And all these things, when all the time the sublime joy of the Lord Jesus Christ is welling inside of us, waiting to come out. You would be surprised how joyous we could be if we'd sacrifice ourselves for somebody else's life. I don't mean die for them. Our blood could cleanse nobody. I'm talking about praying for them. Intercessory prayer for them. Giving our time, giving our efforts and all of this, knowing that it's going to attain something in the kingdom of Almighty God. So his joy was joy of self-sacrifice. That joy that was set before him and all like that, he couldn't see it then. He wasn't ready then. There wasn't any church then. He had some followers. He was trying to teach them in the ways and trying to get them to go where they were supposed to go. And so their joy at that time wasn't fully realized. They had no joy in their life. But he's saying, I want my joy to remain in you until such time that you go to the other room and my spirit come and then your joy is going to be there if you can feel it in the same area I do. Hallelujah. So there is a joy in the Holy Ghost. But that can only be realized as we sacrifice ourselves. That's why there's so many gloomy Christians. Amen? That's why there's so many despondent individuals. And I'm not going to say we run around here and no problem ever bothers us. It does, and it bothered Jesus. It bothered him. And inside he knew what he was there for. Hallelujah. If we could ever get it in our hard heads, what we're here for. Amen. Why are we here? We're his church. We're to reach out in and receive for him a kingdom. And we're to sacrifice ourselves in doing that. We simply are called upon a lot of times to give up a lot of things that we don't desire to give up. So here's joy. How do we reach the joy of God? It's self-sacrifice. That's how we bring out the joy inside. We can be crying on the inside and rejoicing in God, or crying on the outside and rejoicing in God on the inside. I mean, we can have a troubled mind as far as the human mind is concerned, but some way, and it's a paradox, you don't understand it, but some way there is a peace and contentment in the holy presence of God that we can't explain. In other words, when we turn it all over to God, we can sit down in the midst of all adverse conditions and still feel a sense of peace and security that we never had before. That's the joy that he was talking about. That was his joy. The joy they hadn't had yet. The joy they hadn't received yet. But he said, I want you to hold on to mine until then. And then there was a joy of just giving, of benevolence. If you notice, he lost himself and those for which he lived and died. Nothing else mattered to this God-man but his church. Amen. Nothing else mattered to him but you. All right? Let's make it personal. 
in his life, his comings and goings, everything that he did from the time he was veiled in flesh, lived above sin, walked the sandy shores, endured heartache and shame and despondency, everything he did, he had you in mind. He lost himself in us. Hallelujah. In other words, what happened to him didn't matter as long as he purchased us with his divine blood. Nothing else mattered except he imparted to us his divine spirit. He was lost completely to himself. Had nothing about anything else in his life. Walked against and contrary to human nature. Walked to the very place where he knew he would suffer. Don't tell me humanity wants to suffer. I won't believe you. Amen. But if you'll tell me humanity won't suffer, I'll disagree with you. Because humanity under the inspiration of Almighty God will suffer if we can see a reason for our suffering. And if we can get our eyes where they belong, there is still a reason. He still purchased us. He still filled us. It's still what we need in our life, but we need to lose ourselves in what our commission is to this world. Everything else ought to be second rate concerning what God has for us, but he lost himself in there. Their salvation was the inspiration of his endurance. You look at him sometimes, and I think we ought to study his life. I think we ought to study him in his humanity and realized he was man of like passions even as we. And yet he was without sin. And so you have to look at him sometimes and watch him as he is suffering and enduring. And you have to ask, what inspires him? What makes Jesus do what he does? And then you'll have to realize that his inspiration was you. And his inspiration was me. In other words, what inspired him to do what he was doing was simply you and I lost and undone and needed a Savior and the church that was sent before him inspired him. We need some inspiration, don't we? We need something that would inspire us to do what God would ask us to do. And we need to walk in that. And so that's what made him endure. And that also give him an anticipation. He was anticipating all the time the joy that he was going to receive. Not a joy for himself. I think he was past that. I don't think he was that concerned about what was happening to him. He never did indicate it when he walked to shores here. He never indicated that he was concerned what was happening to him. He was always concerned about those that were surrounding him. Every place he went, he was concerned about the blind man. He was concerned about the beggar. He was concerned about the deaf man. He was concerned about Lazarus. He was concerned about the woman with the issue of blood. He was concerned about the woman at the well. His concern was humanity surrounding him and all of their sicknesses and all of their failures. He was always concerned about them. So I have no reason to believe that his joy and the fullness of his joy was what was going to happen to him. It was still what's going to happen to my people. And he anticipated. Hallelujah. I think he lived and died in anticipation of what was going to come out of his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Hallelujah. And I think the angels must have shouted with him and rejoiced whenever the church was born that day on the day of Pentecost. And there came a sound as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they set upon each of them cloven tongues like as of fire. And they began to speak with another tongue as the Spirit gave utterance. And then his joy was further fulfilled when they come out of that upper room, out in from wherever they were sat, into the streets or wherever, and 3,000 souls were saved. He must have shouted into the heavens. I thought he's saying, that's my joy. That's what I died for. That's what I live for. That's what I love myself for. And that's what I'm seeing. That's my joy. That's how my joy can be fulfilled. A joy of love, benevolence, and giving. I think that's what God is asking out of us. Self-sacrifice can bring your spiritual joy unknown to the human mind. It can bring your love and a joy of benevolence and of giving and of losing yourself and losing your life and inspiration that will cause you to endure heartache and suffering and endure so many things that's placed upon this human body. So how do you get it? How many want that joy? <laughs> How many want his joy and wait till our joy is fulfilled? How many want that? You got a hand? Amen. Praise God. I know about you, but I want it. I want that joy. I want to learn how, if I have it inside of me, I want to know how to make it materialize. In other words, I know I have the vine stalk. I know that. And I know I'm a branch. But how do I get this thing to grow with me? How do I make it become alive? How do I make it bloom? How do I make it bud? How do I make it start a piece of a fruit? How do I get the thing in operation? I know what I want. You know what you want. You know what Jesus asked for you to have. But how do I do it? Friend, listen. We've spent too much time hopping up and down. Amen. Is that all right? We spent too much time shouting over what we've got. Then what about what the world doesn't have? Amen? What about what is missing inside there? What about what they're looking for? How about bringing some of that out and sacrificing ourselves a few moments a day, separated from the avenues of this world? moved out from the, the mad rush of this life, a few moments to give unto God in prayer. And as such we pray, asking, begging God, and in anticipation of what's going to happen. You're not going to be too joyous while sweat is running down you, if any of you ever pray that much, where it does do that until uh, your, your body is literally saturated with it. There doesn't seem to be much joy there, but anticipation of what this is going to do. That's what we're talking about. Sister, I think, said something about putting them on the altar. It's not easy. It's not easy to lay your family on the altar and leave them there and watch them go on as if nothing had ever happened. There's no joy in that situation. But the joy is in the anticipation of what is going to happen if we stay true to God. That's where our joy comes from. But of course, if we doubt, there's none there. Fear hath torment, see. There's no joy in fear, but a certain relaxation when they place it there and say, God... That's yours. You handle it. 
And then even though we cry some tears, a certain amount of weary comes within our mind, God, is it ever going to happen inside? Turning over to the Spirit, inside there's an element of joy as we sacrifice some parts of our time praying and interceding for those lives in anticipation of what is going to happen. So how do we get that? How can we live in that? How, how, how does it come about in our life? How is his joy imparted to us? Well, it comes through identification with him. We have to identify with him. In other words, we can't stand off someplace and wave at him. Say, hi, Jesus, I'm glad you passed by one day. We have to have a certain intimate relationship with him. We have to get close enough to him to know what he's saying and what he wants. A lot of people stand far off because the closer you get to Jesus, the more demanding he is. Amen. I mean, the closer you get, have you ever wondered sometimes when you really seek God and you really lay it on the altar and things seem to just get rougher and you fulfill one thing and Jesus says, I'd like for you to give this up. And the closer you get to him, the more demanding he is. Amen? Well, that stands to reason. Amen? When I was going with my wife, I couldn't tell her not to go with anybody else. Amen? Two of us wasn't one. <laughs> I was hoping she wouldn't. <laughs> Still don't know if she did or not. <laughs> but, but I was hoping she wouldn't. But I couldn't give her no order at that. But then she became my wife. We became close. Hallelujah. See what I'm talking about? And there was a certain element there. They were identified. So we have to identify like the disciples identified with their master. And Jesus was wanting them to identify with him. And then we have to have his mind. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now that's a good scripture, but I want you to notice that first letter. Let. That seems to be an act of will, doesn't it? Amen. That seems to be an act of asking. He don't say, your will is going to be like mine. He doesn't do that. He says, let this will. Let his will. In other words, it's an act of will in our own life. So we have to have his mind. We have to try our best to think what he thinks. When we get in a situation and we don't know where to go, have you ever stopped and wondered, what would Jesus do if he was in my position? And so we have to have his mind. How does he think? What is he desiring? And then we have to have his goals. His goal was his church. <laughs> Our goal ought to be the same thing. His goal was unselfish. Ours ought to be the same thing. And his purposes has to be ours. We can't substitute anything. All of these things is what brings his joy. And his joy increases and is fulfilled through active employment in his service. You like that? Active employment in his service. <laughs> that don't mean just to be hired. That means work. All right? Active 
employment in his service. Now, you're wasting your time trying to get the mind of God and the goals and purposes of Almighty God if you're not actively employed by him. I mean, if you've got your own mind, your own goals, and nothing outside, nothing will supply you but do that. And there's no work in us, there's no sacrifice, there's no prayer, uh, there's no intercessory, there's no visitation, there's no witnessing. We're not employed by him. Our greatest achievement. For a lot of us, God help me tonight, Jesus help me, our greatest achievement is some way struggling out to the house of God. And some of us don't even do that all the time. And then we dare say we are actively employed by Him. God help us. I'm talking to us tonight. God help us. And then we think once, or how we get down if we're steady, how we get down on those that are not quite so steady. But we're here and we think once we have come and once we have sang two or three songs and once we've endured that loud mouth preachers 45 minutes to an hour, then we're all set to go to the house, prop our feet up, turn on our television and sit there the rest of the week and do nothing until another service time. And we want to call ourselves actively employed in him. Good preaching, Brother Hoskell. But that won't work. That's not active employment. You wouldn't keep your job doing that. You'd get fired the first day out. Yes, you would. If you thought all you had to do was some way stumble into your post of duty and then just sit there and endure an hour or two and then go home, you would never do a paycheck. And they would never call you actively employed at all. So there's a little bit more to receiving and getting from God what is necessary. You simply have to be actively employed in His service and the joy of the Lord is started in fellowship. Yes. Hallelujah. No, no, no. I don't mean shaking hands with one another. I mean in fellowship with Him. We do a lot of fellowshipping with one another, but I'm talking about fellowship with Him. How many times you ever went with to him and put your arms around his neck and said, Jesus, I really do love you. Let's have a little fellowship. Yes. Hallelujah. Let's have a little fellowship. And it's fellowship of labor, of labor. See, it started in a fellowship with him of labor and it's consummated or brought to its fullness in the rest of his eternal kingdom. So his joy started here. And it's going to be ended and brought to his fullness. Let's phrase it that way. Been brought to his fullness in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter how high emotional you are or how low down on the pole you get, the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ remains the same. It's placed there for that. And it shines forth just like pure gold. And his joy is satisfying. Hallelujah. If you don't have satisfaction, then you don't have his joy. If you're not satisfied in him and what you are in him, then his joy hasn't been realized in your life. There's a lot of people that drink from the wells and fountains of this earth. We drink water every day. 
But once we drink water, and then first thing you know, we're going to have to have it again. But his joy is satisfying. He told that little woman, said, you drink of this well, and you'll thirst again. And if you drink of that well I'm talking about, a well of living water, you'll never thirst anymore. Hallelujah. In other words, he's saying, you've got the Holy Ghost, use it. Make it mean something in your life. Make it mean more than just a birth. Make it mean a growth. Make it mean a maturity. Make it mean some joy and peace in your life. And I don't think there's anything that pleases the devil any more than to see a sad sack Christian. I think he just laughs and laughs when he sees a sad sack Christian because he really knows he has a chance because they've never found that fountain of living water where they can drink and never thirst again. Are you trying to say we ought to ever be sad? Sure, you're going to be sad. And sure, there's going to be moments when you're going to be higher up than, than other times and other times when you're going to almost completely hit bottom as far as human emotions is concerned. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that for which Christ died for. I'm talking about that which he, surprise of all surprises, made available to us. Can I really have joy like Jesus did? Well, did I read that wrong? Or did he actually say that, that my joy might remain in you? In other words, he's saying it is possible my joy remain in you, and then your joy can be filled or can be full. And his joy is eternal. Hallelujah. Earth joy grows dim, it glories fade away, but the joy of the Lord is immortal. Psalm 16, 11 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there is pleasures forevermore. Hallelujah. Pleasures forevermore. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Mature joy, you can know it. So what are we saying? What's he saying? He's saying when the world gets too much for us, when the avenues that we walk every day are too straight and, and too, too much pressure upon us, and when adverse condition, despondency, and discouragement come our way, he's telling us to run to the rock and let him hide us with his hand. Hallelujah, until the dangers pass us by. Hallelujah. How many of you the Tila Basata Mosi? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He can put us there and hide us till they're all gone. And all pass by all the disappointments. All the discouragement and despondency is in the presence of God at his right hand as pleasures forevermore. Verse twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He's reiterating a commandment that he'd given them previously in John 13, 34, when he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now, there's a reason. I don't know, don't think we'll get to that tonight because shortly we're going to close. There's a reason he keeps reiterating that. You know, we told you before, anytime he keeps saying something over and over, and he's really saying, This is important. This is necessary. This must be heard. 
And when he says that, and when you see things over and over, and you, you've sought on up here, my commandments that you abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends. Now, in the previous verses and commandments on love, whenever he speaks of that, as I said, he's leading up to something. What he's actually saying, now listen closely, he's saying. I'm going to tell you why I'm telling you these things. See, you don't just live out and say you're supposed to do this and never give you a good reason why you're supposed to do it. But he's leading up to something, and Christ reveals that in uh, uh, this verse. When he says, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. In other words, he's telling them that if this love is consummated in their lives, their relationship with him is going to be changed. In other words, they are going to become his friends if they would do what they were commanded to do. And it's got to be remembered this, that when one becomes a friend of God, he doesn't cease in his role as a servant. He continues in that role with added responsibilities as well as added privileges. Now, in Eastern customs, we're servants of God, remember, and that's the way he talked to these until he said in the 14th verse, now you're my friends, but he says you're my friends if. See, we always take out that little thing, but on my part, you're my friends, but if you do whatsoever I command you. 15th verse says, Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Now in Eastern customs, when a servant had proven himself trustworthy and had been obedient for a certain amount of time, he was called and given the intimate details of the household. Before that, he had given no details of the household. He knew nothing. He was just doing what the master told him to do. He knew nothing before, and he knew nothing after. Nothing was revealed by the master whatsoever other than, I want you to do this. And as servants, that's all we have is just what God tells us to do then. But he's saying, I'm going to create for you, if you love me, and if you're fruitful, I'm going to create for you a new relationship. I'm going to give you some intimate details of what goes on in my household. Hallelujah. In other words, I'm going to let you in on some things. And God is always at his promise, isn't he? God is always a friend to us. But the question remains, are we a friend to him? Now, Abraham was called a friend of God. God just wasn't his friend, or, or Abraham just wasn't God's friend. God was his friend. And that's the first record we have of anybody uh, being called a friend of God. And Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Isaiah 41 and 8 says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So what advantage is there in being called a friend? What advantage is it for us to be fruitful 
and for us to have these things that he's talking about and for us to be a good and faithful servant in so much that he trusts us enough to bring us into his household and reveal intimate details of what his household is going to do, of how it's set forth, about the harvest, about so many things, of what advantage is there in being a friend? Well, I think Abraham, and there again it's Abraham called a friend of God, and you see some advantages that Abraham had that those back there for the majority didn't have. And we've covered this a time or two, but let's go over it again. When Abraham was set at his tent gate, three men came, and uh, there's conversation there about them, and Abraham asked them to come, and he let him feed them and take care of them. And when they got ready to leave, notice now what God said. He said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? In other words, Abraham had reached a relationship with God that God wasn't going to hide anything from him. And this was an advantage to Abraham because Abraham could get serious with God and stood before him while the two destroying angels went to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and there was his nephew Lot there that would never have been delivered except God had allowed Abraham to know what he was going to do. And let me tell you something, saints. There's a lot of things I know that we don't know right now that we're going to know. I'm not going to try to tell you the day and the hour of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I do say this, that if God's people worship and serve Him and bring forth holy fruit into Him, when He gets ready for the destruction of this world, He's going to let us know what is happening and we can get serious with Him and salvation can be for our family and for our friends because we have reached a stage of friendship. We'd know a lot more today if we were friends of God. We wouldn't be just tossed to and fro and wondering what's going to happen. We'd know. A lot of people say, well, I already know. I hear this one talk and I hear that one talk. I do too. And it brings a stage of confusion. I mean, one of them's going to leave us here all the way through. Another one's going to let us stay here about half the time. The other's going to take us up before anything happens. And it's going to happen here. And Israel is this. Another said, no, Israel is that. One says, Israel is time clock. Another says, Israel has nothing to do with the church. On and on and on you can go. All right? Until you can end up in mass confusion. Friend, what we need is a friendship with God. We need to be in intimate relationship with Him and say, God, when you get ready to destroy this world, and I know you will, God, I want to know about it, and I want to know what I can do about it. I want to get serious with you, God. I'm going to stand before you, and before you destroy this earth, and before you destroy these things, I've got a few people I want to be saved, and I'm going to stay there until that happens. But if we're not a friend, we're not going to know this thing. The earth is just going to go on and on until finally, just like Lot, destruction right there on him. Didn't know a thing about it. Lot wasn't saved by his own righteousness. Lot was saved, and you'll find that in Genesis. Lot was saved because Abraham refused to let God go. Amen. He stayed right there. And God honored that because Abraham had reached this place that we're talking about that's available to God's church and God's people. 
Abraham had actually reached that place. His faithfulness brought him that. He obtained a new intimacy with God, a friend, and he was able to intercede for Lot and his family. To know, just to know, is worth a lot. Amen. And God says, now if you'll get that love, that intimacy that I have, if you'll do that, then I'm not going to just have you to be a servant. But I'm going to call you a friend. Now with this comes added responsibility. I mean, a servant just does what he's told. But when he's come in, and he's still the servant. But when he's come in, then he becomes a friend to that household. He's proved himself. Still a servant, but he knows more. And he's more responsible because he knows more. And without that responsibility, if just responsibility is all we had. But you see, God's not an unjust God. With that responsibility, added responsibility as a friend, comes privileges. Hallelujah. Those servants, everybody wanted to reach that stage. Everybody wanted to be called into that house and told what's going on in that household. Everybody wanted that. Every servant did. I want that tonight. Hallelujah. I want that tonight. I want to be a friend of him. Not just him a friend to me. He's been a friend to me. I don't know the time he hasn't been a friend to me. I really don't. But I know a lot of times when I haven't been a friend to him. And I want to reach that place. I want to serve him. I don't want to get past service to God. I don't want to get past being called a servant. I don't. But I also want to be called a friend. Things is happening, saints. This world is reaching a climax. And man is wandering in confusion. And a lot of these kingdoms that man has built is just about getting ready to fall. They're going to crash. And with it comes down a lot of people. Hurt people, destroyed people. And while they are about while they are crashing down, there's going to come a call. Like uh, Revelation says, a cry, Come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sins. They've always heard that's calling to the Catholics. No, it's not. It's calling to every Christian that's been misused, abused, following after the traditions of this world and false teachers and false religion and cults that promise prosperity and give nothing. There's going to be a call, and they're going to have to come out of it. Babylon means confusion. Oh, I realize probably there'll be a city like that. I, I don't think we have to wait for that. You ever see such so much confusion in religion in your life? Sit and listen from morning till night at some of the programs. <laughs> All right? Just sit and listen to them. And if you're not careful, if you're not real spiritual-minded... You won't know what to do. I mean, you just simply won't know whether to end it all or whether God's going to give you a Cadillac in the next few minutes. I mean, you won't. First thing you know, everybody's going to go to hell. Nobody's going to make it except those with the first church or whatever on their door. 
You hear that, and everybody else is going to go to hell. And then the next one you hear, everybody's going to go to heaven. And then the next one you hear, everybody's supposed to be poor. Next one you hear, everybody's supposed to live in a mansion and drive a Cadillac. All in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. What does the Bible say? Shall we stand?